0: Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Do you have the poems of Han Shan in your house? They are better for you than sutra reading. Write them out and paste them on a screen where you can glance them over from time to time. Good afternoon on this last day of the Ho G Spring Session. And as you have heard from the opening, today is a day that we will be spending without the entangling vines, which is after some time of having koan after koan the relief, at least I have to say f- for myself, uh, variety, though these corns give a lot of variety, variety of intake, of nutrition, and dharma nutrition is very important. So that's why there's no text today that's very long, but there will be a good number of poems from Hanshan, a poet from the Tang dynasty that you can find in a book called Cold Mountain, translated by Burton Watson in 1962 for the first time published in this format. So, welcome to this little journey through poetry, And spring. This is the overall theme spring. And here we sit in spring, feeling both the feelings of hope, seeing the budding of the trees, the bulbs spread tulips and hyacinth and daffodils over the landscape. At the same time, we are painfully aware of the difficulties that we face in this world. And, of course, it seems so much bigger because it's in the present for us. But, frankly, all human beings who have ever lived have faced difficulties that seemed as big to them as these difficulties might appear to us. And for that very reason, practices like this practice came into existence. That's why we philosophize as human beings. That's why we look for answers to these questions that we have. And as we know, sometimes certain tendencies are quite too willing to give us the answers and then not only keep these answers for ourselves, but make sure that everybody else accepts them equally as we do. And another difficulty has been created through a solution that might work locally for me as an individual, but by making it an object that is pushed upon others, all that wonder is lost. So, the musings today are about spring, and spring as just being one of the many portions of the spectrum of birth and death. Birth and death, the fleeting nature of this human existence, impermanence, imperfection, all of it. We, as human hearts, minds, are being torn between the beauty of spring and of birth and renewal and the ugliness of decay, violence, murder. It brings up the question, how do we face this duality and this tension that is between birth, death, harmful, wholesome, beautiful, and ugly. One of the great reminders we have every day in our formal Zen practice is the playing of the Han, the Kai Han in the morning. At some places, traditionally, it is said, as soon as the monk can see the lines in their palm. There's enough light. That's the time to go out and to play the Han. The sound is not very coddling of, we would say, it's not a nice sound. It is sharp. It is crisp. And the pattern Reveals to us how time flies. We just chant this, chanted in Kosen Daito, so in uh, Daito Kokushi's last admonition. Kouin Yanogotoshi. Light and darkness, which is the word for time, Kouin, flies like an arrow. Very swiftly. And on the Han, on many of those boards, in the Rinzai school, it is written four times four characters. I'm sure you have heard about them before, but here, they, here are the four lines. The first one, shoji jidai, birth, death, important matter. Birth and death are important matters. The next one is Mujo Jinsoku. Loosely translated, Mujo is impermanence. Jinsoku, so impermanence acts swiftly, everything changes rapidly. Kouin Oshimubeshi the coin dark light and darkness is the same as the coin in this daito daitokukyo ko coin so koin o make use of every moment of time of this dark light dark light toki hito o matazu Time does not wait for humans. Father time, Kronos, just works without will and desire. Time elapses. So while the flowers bloom in our northern hemisphere, autumn strikes the southern hemisphere where there seems to be some progress into a more understanding way of life, in another another place, regressive behavior is manifest and the tension between that is what we feel. But let us start with spring, let us start with spring. And Hanshan's voice shall lead us through this journey. Above the blossoms sing the orioles, Quan, Quan, their clear notes the girl with a face like jade strums to them on her lute. Never does she tire of playing. Youth is the time for tender thoughts. When the flowers scatter and the birds fly off, her tears will fall in the spring wind. What a beautiful expression of this imperfection of our lives. Spring comes. We play the song of arising. We experience the privilege of birth, of being born, of coming into a world in which we observe and partake in the ever unfolding of what we call beauty, life, growth. And if we get attached to it, we begin to overlook the simultaneous disappearance. we overlook that the birds fly off. But as it says in this poem, this girl who plays the lute, when the flowers scatter and the birds fly off, her tears will fall in the spring wind. Tears will come But we we, we continue to exist. We continue to change. And we have the first inklings of this activity of birth and death. And then comes thinking. Oh, yes. I see the flowers bloom here, but in the southern hemisphere, Things are dying. Already, duality has come into existence. And we move from the direct experience of suchness, of being with decay, of being with arising in this very moment. Suddenly, we move into this world of concepts where there are hemispheres, where there is something we call decay, where there is that, what we call arising. Earlier this week, I had the privilege to be invited by Gendo Osho of the uh, the, the, the Zen Center in New Hampshire. Uh, the Upper Valley Zen Center to give a talk about the 10th chapter of the Diamond Sutra. And, you know, in that chapter, uh, it's a very important point in the Diamond Sutra where we are being told to raise the thought that doesn't hold on to anything no sight no sound no smell no taste no thought no touching really like it is in the expressed in the heart sutra but the interesting thing is there in the beginning uh, of chapter 10 we hear about dipankara buddha dipankara buddha is the lamp holding buddha holding that lamp of the light that shines through all of this. And as I was reflecting on it, the light of Dipankara Buddha is a wonderful metaphor for us to approach an ever-increasing closeness to the understanding how we as human beings function. We are scientifically able to to describe this world quite aptly. We know that our sense organs, like our eyes, are only able to perceive a very limited spectrum of light. Our ears are only able to perceive a limited spectrum of sound. And so it is for all of these senses that we have. Our mind is often of this reductionist nature that we try then to reduce everything into black and white, into just polar opposites. And the interesting thing is, if when I sometimes discuss that with uh, someone visiting in Doksan. And the question comes, and I asked the question, so if there's black and white, what is in between? And quite often the answer is, well, uh, many, many shades of gray. Wow. No wonder we are depressed. If there's only gray in between, take a prism and hold it up to the sunlight you will not see a single shade of gray. What we can see is this rainbow, the wonderful spectrum of colors that are not distinct, that in their wholeness are the unfolding of that white light, of that bright light of the Vankara Buddha. And whatever spectrum we look at, whatever we can perceive at the time, depends on our relationship and on the senses that we use, that we are equipped with at the time to relate to that spectrum. Sounds scientific, but really it is not. If our heart is frozen and cold, like the lakes are in the winter, The perception of the warmth and the need for warmth of other human beings is not within the spectrum that can be perceived by that kind of a heart. On the other hand, we have to be also acknowledging that sometimes it is so wide open that we can perceive the full spectrum and it is difficult to bear. But let us hear the next poem in this journey. You have seen the blossoms among the leaves. Tell me, how long will they stay? Today they tremble before the hand that picks them. Tomorrow they wait someone's garden's broom. Wonderful is the bright hearth of youth, but with the years it grows old. Is the world not like these flowers? Ruddy faces, how can they last? How long can we be happy? How long can we be with spring without being pulled into the fear of it passing? Even though we see, we experience, we feel this elapsing of time and the passage of spring to what comes next the flowers that we pick and in the picking we create a cause and the effect will be the end of that flower from its natural journey. So what do we ask ourselves in this context? Oh, why is it that everything passes? Why can't the beauty stay? And the really most difficult thing that we have to learn is that in order to fully appreciate what is unfolding at this moment, there is no room for that fear of its demise, nor is there room for the hope of its permanence. As soon as that happens, that we create that extra space, the suchness is cut into two and we are thrown into our own ideas of this fragmented mind and fragmented heart. But there is a way for us to respond to it and to attend to it. Man's life is less than a hundred years. But he is saddled with a thousand years of woes. No sooner have you cured a sickness of your own than your sons and granddaughters load you with care. Stoop down to see how your grain is growing. Look up to examine your mulberry trees. When the scale weights have plunked to the bottom of the sea, only then will you have a moment to rest. We feel And in this practice, we need to feel this urgency of the shortness of this, of this opportunity as a human being to be in this world. We know our lives are limited. A hundred years is a long time. And we take up practice. We sit, we chant, we work. We realize, we actualize. But always there seems something else to come in and take the place of what we just have attended to. And we see it as a problem. And we see it as a problem and try to avoid that anything else will take that place of what we just cleaned out. I just got rid of it. And then comes the next thing. I am doing something wrong. Yes. But what is it? Is it the constant flow of things that we are doing wrong? Or is it the idea that we should be able to just clean it out completely? And there it will remain, unchanged, undefiled, unimperturbed. The image that Hanshan uses for the weights that you put on a scale being dropped into the ocean, that there is no more judgment. And when it reaches the bottom of the ocean, like in the depth of samadhi, there is a place to rest. But not forever. Not forever. Because the next this is already this. So That is a nice thing to understand when it comes to seeing beautiful things, seeing ourselves. But if we don't talk about spring, but we talk about the human tendency to abuse ourselves or to abuse others, what about that? Very important question. And even to this, we find a wonderful poem of Hanshan. When I see a fellow abusing others, I think of a person with a basket full of water. As fast as they can, they run with it home. But when they get there, what's left in the basket? When I see a person being abused by others, I think of the leek growing in the garden. Day after day, folks pull off the leaves. But the heart it was born with stays the same. When we witness abuse, it is important, of course, to do what we can if we have any influence to stop it from happening. Through this practice, our heart becomes open and has room for the capacity to act appropriately faced with such a situation. But again, no panacea here. There is no miracle that will allow us to just save everybody through our doing. And when we realize that the abuser is trying to stuff something from that person into their basket and to bring it home to hold it on, to hold on to it and to increase what they have, it is like that picture of water that is being poured into a basket. A basket does not hold water. By the time The person arrives at the home to store their spoils of abuse. Nothing is left. But let's turn it around. Doing a good deed very often is based upon, and not very often, there is an inherent self-centeredness to it. We do practice. I practice. How often, how often do we speak about my practice? Here we are trying to take something else and put it into a similar basket and carry it home so we can store it. And to our great dismay, we find out nothing is held in the basket. It's all gone. We like to awaken. We like to think of awakening as something that we can carry in such a basket. We don't like delusion. that we want to ban and let go away completely. The second half of the poem though, when we see the abuse, we can also learn that Buddha nature cannot be abused, erased, defiled, removed, destroyed. So some very important fundamental teachings of this practice and of Buddhism in general can be found in this very short poem. Now allow me to make a little trip away from the poem, but speaking about delusion and awakening. Of course, delusion and awakening are also just these polar opposites that we create. And we have to be very careful that we do not conduct practice firmly attached to such a polarity of delusion and awakening. This goes back to what I just spoke about, polar opposites of darkness and light, of black and white, of delusion and awakening. There's the old Zen saying, and uh, I spoke about it in one of the uh, threefold sanghas last year, after having heard a talk uh, by Chakusho Kwong Roshi, who quoted it there is this old Zen saying that says, before the donkey leaves, the horse has arrived. Well, what does that mean? It means, what is the donkey? Look at our, look at our human mind, the self, the ego, this I am with all its needs. It seems pretty much like, a, like an ass. I don't know if you've ever handled a donkey, but they don't like to be pushed away. They don't like to be pulled in any direction, or they don't like to be told anything. Donkey has free will. And the donkey mind exerts it wantonly so how could we think about using this metaphor here of the donkey that we could push the donkey just out of the way the donkey has to go so we can make room for the horse the delusion has to be completely wiped out before we can awaken But it is important to still acknowledge it. The saying says, before the donkey leaves, the horse has already arrived. You know? If we look at this practice, we have to take care of that donkey with a warm, compassionate heart. We have to work with our delusions. We have to take good care of them. Like they are our children. After all, what gave birth to delusion? We did. Look at the world. What happens to abandoned children? They grow up by themselves and can do harm that will last for generations. So taking in delusions, looking at them compassionately as a natural occurrence within the process of maturation is really, really important. Even if that is self centered as an initial step into the direction of dissolving delusions, this is what we have to do. We cannot throw out the donkey, it will not go. It is built upon opposition. And if we continue to feed opposition to that donkey, The horse might never arrive. But as we compassionately, through actions, take care of the donkey, we realize that the horse is already there. Look at the world. I think it is fair to say that most of the major problems we experience in this 21st century are caused by humans. It's such an easy thing to say, yeah, it is, it is the bad people, the foolish or cruel people who do that. But that's also not the truth. Even though there might be bad faith actions, There might be foolish actions and cruel actions. A lot of these difficulties are created by sincere, brilliant people under the guise or the banner of justice, of liberty, of prosperity, of human welfare of progress and not to forget of religion. So many defilements or difficulties we experience in this world are based upon good deeds. In one of my last talks, I chanted the Sangemon in Japanese, the acknowledgement of harmful karma, the purification we chant in the morning service. And of course, guess what? I messed the words up. Even repenting or taking sangha, acknowledging one's imperfection. How could we do it more perfectly than being imperfect? And even to this here, Hanshan has something to say that is really important to know. So let's see about this Mahayana path. If you sit in silent and never speak, what stories will you leave for the young people to tell? If you live shut away in a forest thicket, how can the sun of wisdom shine out? No dried up carcass can be the guardian of the way. Wind and frost bring sickness and early death. Plow with a clay ox in a field of stone and you will never see the harvest day. Taking our practice from a mere idea to the actualization in the world is a really important step. We can shut ourselves away behind ideas that are like a thicket of a forest. Even compassion and trying to appear as a compassionate or wise being, is such a thicket. The other approach by, oh, if I don't say anything, I will not make any mistakes, is equally flawed. If our heart is cold, wind and frost bring sickness and early death. And being a hard-nosed business person for the sake of business will never reap any kind of harvest that is other than hard stones. The compromise, the reconciliation that we talk about here is a special kind of sanghe, of repentance. There are two kinds of Sangha that we think about in Buddhism. Uh, one of them is called Ji Sange, which is the Sange that is formal, that is in the phenomenal world. The chant of all the harmful karma. That purification happens in this formal expressive way and is the realization of that repentance. However, there is also Ri Sange, where Ri is in the formless world, in the informal world, in the active world. And that is the actualization of the recognition of our incompleteness, our practice. Our lives, our interactions must become expressions of this vow to fully acknowledge this incompleteness. Frankly, without it, we would not have any kind of experience. Any, we couldn't see. We couldn't hear, we could not taste. Buddhist priests don't keep the commandments. Taoists don't take their immortality pills. Lots of wise people have lived since ancient times. And there they lie under the green hill. Sanghe, acknowledgement, is not just confession in the G Sanghe, but it is actualization and has to be actualization of non-duality non-duality, where we just completely stay with this moment after moment. To bring this to an end, Hanshan sends us on the way with this last poem. Now, I have a single robe, not made of gauze or of figured silk. Do you ask what color it is? Not crimson, nor purple either. Summer days, I wear it as a cloak In winter, it serves for a quilt. Summer and winter, in turn, I use it. Year after year. Only this. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.